one of the things you could see this as potentially is sort of just like genre wankery, like just like I'm going to subvert this genre and I'm going to inject this genre into this genre. And I'm just playing with all these like storytelling genres and I'm subverting expectations just for just to surprise people. And Mm -hmm. it can kind of seem that way. But one of the reasons that I think it goes beyond that is that the Western genre is a sort of fundamentally American genre. It is uh, it, it is a representation of the idea of like manifest destiny and and, you know, a lot of the stuff that our country was founded on. And so the Western genre, I think, reflects American ideals and reflects American um, morality and the way we view the world. So when you're talking about subverting a genre that is so intrinsically American, um, you're talking about a, a sort of skewering or just a um, breakdown of some of, you know, Americans philosophies about society and so it it feels a lot more profound than it makes it sound when i'm just talking about like all these genres coming together we're messing with them Uh, it's more than that you know and welcome to episode 183 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Joel and Ethan Cohen's 2007 film, No Country for Old Men. Okay, a chance to cover the Coens. We are finally here. What an incredible film. There's so much to dig into with it. We talked about the book last week. And, you know, again, credit to where credit's due. Cormac McCarthy really shaped this story. Like, I think it's it's pretty evident that the Coens read this and were like, holy shit, we have to turn this into like a, a film. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. So I went down a, a sort of a rabbit hole on YouTube watching a ton of different um, video essays. Me too, actually. Me too. We've t- Yeah, we've talked in the past about how I don't like to have my sort of opinions sculpted by everybody else. Um, but on this one, it's like this this movie and this book are so open to interpretation and they have so many different layered meanings that I, I kind of wanted to see what what the general discourse is about the movie. That way I could kind of come in fully aware of that and then sort of give my own take on it, too. Um, and there was a lot of really interesting stuff out there, and some of it disagrees with with some of the other stuff. In my in my viewing of of a lot of these different videos, is like I got different perspectives, and that's part of the reason why I enjoyed doing it. Because ultimately, people were landing in different places and and you mm-hmm. know emphasizing different things. But I also feel like it's it's a lot. I'm a lot more likely to do something like this on something I've seen before. You know, yeah. with having with having already seen it, I kind of knew my overall thoughts, just not like very fresh it was nice Mm -hmm. to like revisit and like i remember this movie being more western and less like joel and ethan cohen like diving into the noir stuff that they love um, Mm -hmm. which i'm really excited to dig into well and and that's something that bringing it back to what you were talking about with this cormac mccarthy novel we just read um it is kind of incredible that the cohen brothers were able to find a novel to adapt that seems to so perfectly fit their sensibilities as filmmakers yeah. and the kind of films they like to make. Um, and, and that's what I imagine, like, especially when you're talking about these like uh, Oscar winning directors, you know, people who are operating on this really high level who have their own visions, like 
when they make a choice for something to adapt, there has to be an overlap where they go, this is the kind of thing that's going to fit the kind of films we want to make. They're not just going to do like a complete outlier, you know? Right. You know, uh, it kind of reminds me of like Charlie Kaufman with, um, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, Ian Reid. Mm -hmm. the, the way that that so much felt like a story that he would, that Charlie Kaufman would yeah. read and be like, this is fucking weird. Let's do this. And I think that makes for some of the best adaptations we've covered, honestly, is is when that's the case, when there's something great yeah. in the source material and then you get this great filmmaker come in and, and there's an overlap there where they see the story as something that fits the kind of stories they want to tell. And I definitely think that's the case here. Definitely. So we're going to talk more about the Coens, but, uh, you know, I want to give you the opportunity to just we've kind of gushed a little bit. But what was your viewing yeah. like this time? Uh, how much did you remember what mm -hmm. you know what was fresh for you and what did you, what stands out in this viewing i think this is like my fourth time seeing this movie that's my guess mm -hmm. um i saw it in the theaters when it came out um i remember the sort of you could just see the disappointment and like confusion in the crowd yes. yeah i remember, I remember people like angry walking out of this movie um and and that's all touching on the ending we're, are we we're gonna go to full spoilers for this right throughout yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, it ends with a cut to black after, you know, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Sheriff Bell, just, like, talking about a dream. And that's the ending of the movie. And, like, so many people were so mad about it. Um, yet there was definitely people who were like, no, oh, it's actually really good. And so I remember it was a really interesting conversation with my friends afterwards. I can't remember who exactly I saw it with, but I think there was there was dis dissent among the people who saw it, whether or not it was a good movie, whether or not mm -hmm. we liked it. Um and and I remember I really liked it, so it was one that I wanted to watch again in the future. I knew I wanted to like go revisit it because it felt like there was a lot more going on. Each time I've watched it, I, I feel like I have appreciated more about it and um, appreciated the subversion and breaking from genre conventions and storytelling conventions and the purpose behind doing that. Right. And um, this time, you know, I busted out my old Blu-ray that had been a while. I had, to, I had to blow some dust off of it mm -hmm. and, and put it in and watch it. But uh, it looked great. And um, it was a fun experience revisiting it. Uh, and, and yeah, definitely excited to talk more about it. Yeah. Um, my experience, I'm, I'm going to cop to the fact that like when I first saw this movie, it's not that I didn't like it. I just don't think I got it. It took me, yeah. you know, understandable. I, yeah, I, I came out. I remember seeing it in theaters as well. And I remember being like cool things happen in this movie and shocking things happen. But I remembered not really want not, not not that I didn't want to at the time, but I didn't find myself digging into it all that all that much. And and like, I think upon repeat viewings, obviously, like I've I realized that like there's a lot of subtext here and a lot of like metaphors going on within the story that is the it's kind of giving you the themes along the way and and mm -hmm. like the the way that i don't know there's so much analogy between like the forces of good and evil and then and then honestly the thing that made me uh appreciate this movie more was just getting more knowledge and studying western films like like westerns not just western mm -hmm. films but like once once you have i think that basis in westerns and you understand like exactly what's going on with this story it's 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 for people who love westerns but don't want the same thing anymore. It's it's to freshen up that genre in a way. And we kind of talked about it with the with the book as well. Like yeah. that that that's sort of what Cormac McCarthy set out to do as well. Yeah. Is it is it a freshening up or is it an execution? You know, it feels yeah. it, it's like I I can't decide. Like it 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 is kind of the death of westerns here too and we talked about that specifically in the book. And um it is about I mean 
I think this was in uh, maybe the take. I, I can't remember. I watched so many of these uh, video essays. I, I, I'm going to fail to give shout outs to each one. Maybe I'll put a few in the show notes, just the ones I do remember. Because yep. um, they all were good and had their own distinct points. But one of them made the point that uh, Bell feels like a classic Western hero who's been airlifted and dropped into the middle of this noir, like, you know, neo-noir story. And he's completely out of place in it. And that that's like a lot of the... The conflict is the the you know the difficulty he's having grappling with what he's seeing, and we talked about this a little bit in our last episode. It's not like it didn't occur to us, but I do think that that is a, an interesting prism. And you, the audience, identifies him as this classic Western hero, right. you know, complete with the white hat and and all these other trappings of the classic Western sheriff, law bringing sheriff, and like all the ways that the story breaks him down and makes him give up and, and sort of throw in the towel um, is a complete subversion of what we've always expected from movies where these characters always come out on top. They're always brave enough to stand up to whatever, you know, uh, they're, they're at odds with the world and, and like everything's against them. And ultimately they come out on top because like we said last week as well, it's sort of the superhero genre. Like you have Mm -hmm. like the heroes and the villains and the hero overcomes the villain. And, and in a lot of stories, not just Westerns or superhero movies, that's the case. Like the, the protagonist and the antagonist like it's coming to some sort of whether it's a verbal verbal spar or whatever it is like there's always some sort of you know conflict coming yeah um, is this is this story is no country for old men the watchman of western stories <laughs> as watchman is maybe, to the superhero yeah. genre <laughs> well i was gonna say like the the idea that western so cormac mccarthy wrote this not just as a response to western novels he wrote it also as a as a response to western or to to yeah western films so -hmm. it's like he's seeing john wayne and he's like what's the what is john wayne if not the ultimate hero that always wins at the end of the day what happens if john wayne realizes that it's too much for him and he gives up and so like that's like what you're saying like that response and i think it's so funny the interplay between like novels it's just culture at that point like the the genre of of western it's it's not just novels and it's not just films. It's like it's ex, it's ex gone beyond that, and everyone knows what a western is, even mm-hmm. if you don't know the specifics of the genre. You you can look at it and be like, this is a western because their hats mm-hmm. and the the setting and you know the the six guns and everything. Uh, and then so, ultimately you have the Coens saying like, okay, well we love this Cormac McCarthy s- story and we want to like bring it to this to the big screen because western film western films were so massive in America for such a long time and to like to to play it out like this into back into the culture again I think you know it's it's so fascinating because this is it's it's a true adaptation of uh and subversion of novels and films so I think uh, a listener who is maybe a little bit frustrated with this movie um understandably so there there are definitely reasons to be frustrated but um one of the things you can see this as potentially is sort of just like genre wankery like just like i'm gonna subvert this genre and i'm gonna inject this genre into this genre and i'm just playing with all these like storytelling genres and i'm subverting expectations just for just to surprise people and Mm -hmm. it can kind of seem that way but one of the reasons that i think it goes beyond that is that the western genre is a sort of fundamentally american genre it is uh, it is a representation of the idea of like manifest destiny and and, you know, a lot of the stuff that our country was founded on. And so the Western genre, I think, reflects American ideals and reflects American 
um, morality and the way we view the world. So when you're talking about subverting a genre that is so intrinsically American, um, you're talking about a, a sort of skewering or just a um, breakdown of some of, you know, Americans' philosophies about society. And so it, it feels a lot more profound than it makes it sound when I'm just talking about like, oh, these genres coming together, and we're messing with them. Uh, it's more than that, you know? Yeah, definitely. I loved it. But and I'll still stand by the fact that The Last Jedi was was the best of that trilogy. Um, but people were upset because it was like they're like, they're just sub subverting for the sake of subverting. But mm -hmm. like that, that's I mean, there are the examples case. of people doing that. Like, look at the final season of Game of Thrones is subversion for subversion's sake. So like there is, you know, you can be upset about that. Sometimes it is bad. I, I wouldn't even give them the credit of calling that subversion. I just think that they were going for shock value at that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I know mm -hmm. that like subversion to me means like they're doing it purposely to like play with something and i think yeah. with the end of game of thrones they were just like what if we you know let's just do this and then that you know it'll work itself out i think they were like people will think we're really clever and they'll think that we're we're doing all this right. other stuff but they didn't have the they didn't put the thought into it they didn't do it as purposely as much as they were just wrecking shit it's like uh, a putting to together a puzzle people. yeah it's like when you're doing it correctly it's like putting together a puzzle Versus yeah. like what they're doing is literally just like, you know, throwing darts at the wall Fli and they're like, this is I was going to say flipping the table of the puzzle. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Throwing, uh, it's just like, you know, anything random doesn't, doesn't, I don't consider that subversion. Yeah. It's it, subversion in the, just in the sense that they told a really bad story out of what could have been a really good one. That's the only way it was a subversion of anything. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's get back onto this. Um, oh, and one of the things, one of the things that it has done for me, just as a brief aside, I'm writing this underwater sci-fi novel that is in many ways heavily a Western. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I was kind of considering it sort of a neo-Western in my sensibilities. But I realized watching this and reading it that I need to put more thought into what exactly, what kind of Western it is, how I can either break from convention or stay with convention at different moments. And so that's something I'm going to be thinking about as I'm finishing this novel is, uh, you know, what exactly I want to say with my my Western, because um, this has really shown me like, OK, if you're going to write a Western these days, there's a lot of you baggage. Need to, you yeah. need to like yeah, there's a lot of baggage and you need to know exactly what you're coming in to say about it. Yeah. And um, that, you know, that's just something that I think is worth considering for anybody out there who might be tr thinking about writing a Western or writing, which is so often the case these days, like a sci-fi that has a Western influence or a fantasy yeah. that feels like a Western or whatever genre you may be, you're blending. It, you, when you're coming to that genre, what conventions are there? What has their history been? And if you're going to embrace them, what are you embracing? And if you're going to break yeah. them, why are you doing it? And then speaking of of genre and embracing genre, this this on the surface is a Western, subverted Western. But then we also get the trappings of a Coen Brothers film with the noir elements. And yeah. I, I like I said, I was shocked at how much noir was in it because noir is close to me. Like my first short film that I ever directed was like a satirical film noir. Like I, I, noir has always been one of the most fascinating genres to me. And it's one of those ones that also like, of course, it's turned, there's the neo-noir now and there's all these different noir like um continuations in a similar way to the Western. There's not like mm -hmm. straight up and down noir films anymore. Um, yeah. And and uh, the way that they pulled in noir to this film is just like so striking with the like the the high contrast and like a lot just just the overall like 
you know, in one of the video essays, I can't remember which one either, unfortunately, but they talked about like, it starts out by showing these large landscapes that you associate with Westerns. And then, and then a lot of the movie actually takes place with like someone in the dark peeking through like, like the blinds of a motel, a CD motel or something like that. So, mm-hmm. and then like, that's very much more noir. So, so yeah. I loved seeing how they thematically that all works with the idea of like the old world and the old, you know, the old west, the wide open spaces versus the cramped mod- modernity, right? The all this like seedy, uh, gray moralities of of the city life is is yeah. we've come to expect. So I I just love seeing that, and and I think that you know there may have been some noir elements in Cormac McCarthy's novel, but that's really how they changed the story. I think is they very much uh, pumped it up to to be. It's basically a noir more than a western, whereas I feel yeah. like uh, Cormac McCarthy's is like neo western. Yeah, well, noir is is I, I could be wrong about this, but it feels to me like much more of a film genre than anything else. Yeah, um, but there like there's your detective stories and things like that in in uh, novels, right? Right. But, the, but there's something specific about noir that was like it's like specifically like you said like 40s like post war something about there's like visual elements that seem essential to it that feel yeah. like are difficult to translate to where if you're going to try and do it in a book, it almost feels like you're trying to translate a film genre into a book. Um, now I could be completely wrong about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not a historian of genre, and like f- maybe noir has a long history before it became a film thing in books. I don't know. It's interesting that um, the Coens really brought in their noir, and, and I know that's something that they do in a lot of different films in their catalog, um, and it seems like a perfect fit. Um, where and, and a lot of the visual elements, like the shadows and the stark contrast and stuff like that, like you that doesn't really work in a book because there is no visual element. It's all in the mind's eye. So you can tell people to like imagine a shadow, but it's it's not the same effect, right? Yeah, you'd have to be doing a lot of like, and it would it would be tough to make it subtle, right? It would be tough to, to make it seem like uh, you could do, you could run, go through the motions, but like you said, like in order to actually evoke like noir, you're going to need some sort of like visual element to it to say like, you know, the shadow that was cast on the wall was larger than life and did it all these things. Like mm-hmm. there's so many shots in this movie, like specifically a couple that stand out to me, the the sitting in front of the TV and yeah. Anton Chigurh sitting in front of the TV, followed by um, Bell sitting in front of the TV. And just like he's this like looming specter, Anton Chigurh. Mm-hmm. And then and then this like he's looking into a TV, seeing a cowboy hat and like what that means to West. Like, you know what I mean? Westerns watching Westerns on a television, something like like mm-hmm. like the old Westerns that he's calling back to. But anyway, that stuff was amazing. They're in the dark and just this reflection. And then, of course, the one of the last shots is like him walking through the doorway and like the light from his headlights coming through and like showing like a silhouette of a of a uh, traditionally Western looking man with his, with his hat and like his hands on his hips kind of thing. That, that both of those scenes are are really interesting, right? Because they, they both sort of represent one character trying to get into the mind of another. Mm -hmm. So when Shigur is there to me, it felt like he's like, I'm going to try and imagine what it is like to be Llewellyn trying to think like Llewellyn. He's the character I'm now going to be chasing. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting detail that he drinks the milk um, which, you know, milk is, you know, like a human bodily fluid or, uh, you know, here it's a cow, but you know, it, it's a fluid that like is biological, right. In that right. sense. And, and, and so there is something, I don't know, sort of profound in the sense that it's like, uh, you know, 
it's very living to be drinking milk. And so I assume mm. there's something going on with that, right? And then it also well, reminds There's also me- something to be said for, for villains drinking milk, too. Okay, I believe that. But it also, like, reminds me of some of the details that if you're into true crime, you'll always hear about different serial killers would go into people's homes or whatever, and after they killed somebody or maybe while they're still doing it, they'll, like, eat their food and drink their beverages and, like, sit on their couch and watch their TV. And, like, stuff like that often happens, Um and I, I was thinking of that with Shigur, too. It felt like this invasion and this, like, dominance over the mm-hmm. space. And then you you then get Bell do something similar, whereas he's trying to think about Shigur. And it's really interesting that he seems incapable of really doing it, other than to just say that he is he's sort of overwhelmed by trying to imagine. Like, he can't even put a name to it. He can't even try and imagine it. And mm-hmm. It, it like he's worried about losing his soul if he tries to even imagine what this kind of person thinks about. So yeah, it, yeah it's interesting you get those two those two scenes with similar goals but very different results. Yeah, I feel like we're getting pretty far into the into the some of the things that happen in the yeah. plot. So let's talk about the Coens and then jump into the plot itself so we can really dig in. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Joel and Ethan Cohen, collectively referred to as the Cohen brothers, are American film directors, producers, screenwriters, and editors. Their films span many genres and styles, which they frequently subvert or parody. Their most acclaimed works include Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Which, just reading that list, those are all incredible films. Have you seen them all? I I think I've seen all but like three. I've seen all of them, yeah. I've I've seen most of them. Speaking of like a serious man, I think is one of their most underrepresented films and that people don't talk about. And it's literally taking the story of Job from the Bible. Like, do you, are you familiar? Like he goes through all these trials and tribulations. I, think I saw a serious man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, so I, I, that's another one of the Cohen films that when I walked out, I was like, this was so weird. What the fuck yeah. are they trying to say? And then when I understood that it was like, it was the story of Job, like going through trials and tribulations that, that God is putting on him. And like uh, I, I, I watched the movie with fresh eyes and was like, this movie is fucking amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's some there's some of my favorites in there, too, like Fargo, like such a classic, yeah. great movie. Um, Recently, Inside Lewin Davis is like crept up mm-hmm. my like that's one of my favorite movies. That's crept. I haven't seen that one. That there's a few yeah. that I haven't seen that I, I really should because I, I feel like I like so much of what they do. Burn After Reading, I think, is a really interesting movie. Yeah. A lot of these I've only seen once, and I'm like, I need to see them again because, mm-hmm. you know, clearly repeat viewings on a lot of this stuff really bring something else. They, they're they the kind of filmmakers that do, like, one for me, one for them, mm-hmm. where it's, like, something that'll be popular to, like, the general audience and then something that they want to make because they find it to be, like, a fascinating subject to cover. But, um, I mean, like, is this one for them? Like, this... And- no, no, no. Is this is though? kind of one. This is kind of one for the general audiences, I would say. In comparison, you think so? Because because the way it breaks every convention. I mean, I guess on the surface it looks like it's going to be that, but so right. many people were so mad about this movie walking out. <laughs> yeah, but it won. It won Best Picture. Like it was yeah. like broadly appealing. Like yeah, I don't know if it was like necessarily they knew that it was going to be for one of the for them ones, but it ended up being so. Uh, well, and if you're gonna do a for them like this, though, like. When you say it for me and a for them, like it, it to me that feels like you're you're not putting your creative like soul into the things you're making for for them. And this does not feel like they're not you know what I mean? Like this feels like they're absolutely doing they're they're putting everything behind it. When I say that typically with a filmmaker I, like that I respect, I don't think that like filmmakers like that walk into anything and don't give their whole 
their whole effort. So what I mean is specifically isn't like they're not giving their effort. I think it's just that they're like, in order to stay viable to studios, we need one that's going to do well at the box office and then we can do one that might not yeah. do quite as well. I mean, I just like, so when I think of Taika Waititi doing uh, an Avengers, you know, movie or a Thor movie, that's a for them. This does not feel anything like that to me. Like I, yeah. I'm not comfortable comparing what they. Well, then you can to, you can consider it for 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 them. Then you can consider it for for the Coens themselves, and then look yeah. at some of their other ones. I just like, don't see many of the. I mean, they're not they're not doing Marvel movies. You know what I mean? Like I, I just don't, I don't. See they're that. Ju- but they did True Grit. You know, True Grit. They went back and did like yeah. a very very popular western that had John Wayne in it and remade it with 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 Matt Damon and stuff like, and. Yeah. Uh, so like they do do it, but of course like I I respect these filmmakers immensely. Mm-hmm. Something like Raising Arizona and uh, Big Lebowski, Fargo. Some of these are so iconic, and uh, whether they're for them or for for us, for them, whoever it's for, <laughs> they're good. So yeah, uh, they're they're. It's just crazy to think like some of these movies are like transcend. They're part of the pop culture. Like Big Lebowski is so mm-hmm. quintessential to the internet to everything. People reference yeah. it all the time, and it's like so. And they're the, like you said, they're these kind of filmmakers that all of their movies aren't going to appeal to everyone. Yeah. It's funny because out of all the ones you listed, this movie might have the least amount of humor. It has like, it has some humor in it, but it seems like very little compared to a lot of, a lot of what's in there. Like Fargo is like incredibly darkly funny. Like a lot of these, even though they're more serious, heavy movies have a lot of humor to them. And this movie has a little bit, but maybe that, maybe that comes from the source material a little bit. Cause like they didn't, they didn't change it that much. And to bring in a ton of humor that wasn't in the book would have would have definitely changed it. Yeah, they still have the like the edge, that comedic edge to them. Like I remember yeah. specifically, there's that woman that he come that Shigur comes into the room and he's like, "I need a room or whatever." She just yells at him and is like, "I'm not telling you shit." Did it all the stuff and he yeah. just walks out, not having. I mean, killed that, that, that woman. scene happens in the book, but yeah, it's like it's funnier to actually see it at the the performance. And I wrote this down: like the woman doesn't break eye contact with him the whole time. And Shigur looks like he can't believe that she's doing it. She's yeah. just staring him down. Yeah. And that's funny. That. And they, that and they do that on purpose. They, the way yeah. that they edit, the way that like everything is very intentional when they, when they film these scenes. And like you said, I agree. It's not very funny in comparison. Uh, a lot of theirs are, are one much more funny. Raising Arizona, like you said, Fargo, Big Lebowski. Some of them are straight up comedies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So the brothers write, direct, and produce their films jointly. They often alternate top billing for their screenplays while sharing editing credits under the alias Roderick Janes. They have been nominated for 13 Academy Awards together and individually for one award each, winning Best Original Screenplay for Fargo and Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay for No Country for Old Men. Wow. The duo also won the Palme d'Or for Barton Fink. Oh, uh, Barton Fink's a good movie, too. I like that movie. Super funny, again. Weird movie, movie. too. Yeah. Yeah. You know what else is another one that we didn't even talk about? Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Just, like, Mm -hmm. really funny movie while also... But it's, like, it's that weird, quirky funny. It's like a musical, too, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot of singing in it. That's all I remember. I I need to see that movie again. Like, I think I, like, half-watched it at a party. It was, like... My, my time yeah. that movie. you should so watch that that one is again. another one where they're kind of playing with story conventions and stuff of course because they always mm-hmm. do yeah uh, they are known for their distinctive stylistic trademarks including genre hybridity no country for old men a serious man and inside lewin davis have been ranked in the bbc's 2016 poll of the greatest motion pictures since 2000 in 1998 the american film institute ranked fargo among the 100 greatest american f- movies ever made so a little history on the Coens. After graduating from the 
from New York University, Joel worked as a production assistant on a variety of in- industrial films and music videos. He developed a talent for film editing and met Sam Raimi while assisting Edna Ruth Paul in editing Raimi's first feature film, The Evil Dead. Wow. Amazing. Amazing film history and connection to Sam Raimi. That's, yeah, that's cool. uh, so awesome. In 1984, the brothers wrote and directed Blood Simple, their first commercial film together. Set in Texas, the film tells the tale of a shifty, sleazy bar owner who hires a private detective to kill his wife and her lover. The film contains elements that point to their future direction. Distinctive homages to genre movies, in this case noir and horror, plot twists layered over a simple story, dark humor, and mise-en-scene. The film starred Francis McDormand, who went on to feature in many of the Coen Brothers' films. And, just as a side note, Francis McDormand is married to Joel Coen. Oh, wow. I did not know that. No. Francis McDormand is just one of our greatest living actors, so that's yeah, an awesome so connection good. there. Upon release, the film received much praise and won awards for Joel's direction at both the Sundance and Independent Spirit Awards. That was cool just to be able to talk about, like, from the very beginning. I haven't seen Blood Simple. Blood Simple's all. You said you have? I have not. Oh, you should watch that. It's really yeah. good. To see, like, f- like confident filmmakers, like, at the fr- at the outset is, is yeah. really, really cool. That's cool. It sounds like um, something I'd like. You would love it, yeah. So, uh, that was cool because we got to talk about the fact that, like, they were doing homages to genre movies right away. They were blending genre. They were, you know, dealing with this dark humor, which we just spoke about. That's, mm-hmm. like, permeates all their stuff. Uh, and then I want to talk about No Country for Old Men now. It was released in November 2007. It closely follows the 2005 novel of the same name by Cormac McCarthy. Vietnam veteran Lewin Moss, living near the Texas-Mexico border, stumbles upon and decides to take $2 million in drug money. He must then go on the run to avoid those trying to recover the money, including sociopathic killer Anton Chigurh, who who confounds both Lewin and the local sheriff Ed Tom Bell. The plotline is a return to noir themes, but in some respects it was a departure for the Coens, with the, ex- with the exception of Stephen Root, none of the stable of regular Cohen actors appeared in the film. So obviously they continually have the same actors return. Mm. And honestly, when you have these auteur filmmakers, like that tends to be the case. They start to work with these like elite actors. Yeah. Um, and then we they see some of, of them return though. Like Josh Brolin is in True Grit, right? I yeah. Correctly, yeah, I yeah. think he is. And this is also, I wanted to say while we're talking about Josh Brolin, when I started to take Josh Brolin really seriously and not see him as just like the brother from Goonies. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I used to always think of him from the Goonies and then yeah. it was this movie that eventually I was like, oh shit, like he's going to be mm-hmm. a fucking massive star and then obviously he's gone on to, you know, I don't I, I don't want to say that I knew he was going to be a massive star. I just knew that he was to be taken seriously. Thanos yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah. Thanos himself and then just, uh, so many other films. Like he's he's amazing. He's, I mean, he's massive. He's, he's like, clearly he's playing Thanos and like that, that role is like all out and out iconic at this point. Like he's Mm -hmm. like, you know, what James Earl Jones is to Darth Vader, like you could almost say Josh Brolin is going to be in the future for Thanos. Like that voice is so iconic. Oh, I I absolutely think that's an accurate thing to say. Absolutely. Yeah. No Country won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, all of which were received by the Coens, as well as Best Supporting Actor received by Bardem. The Coens, as Roderick Janes, were also nominated for Best Editing, but lost. It was the first time since 1961 that two directors received the Academy Award for Best Director at the same time. So yeah, something that I don't know if you knew or not was that the Coens... produced directed wrote and edited this film no country for old men i didn't know that but that, that's cool i mean adapted from from uh cormac mccarthy's novel which was it started out as a screenplay so it's interesting when you say wrote it's like well 
<laughs> it, 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 they did write it. I mean, but adapting. There's an, they they do give out Oscars for adapting screenplays. Yeah, you know, it's so. just interesting because it's it is so at its core the book. Like it's really a very uh, uh, faithful adaptation in many ways. Did you watch the uh, the video essay from Lessons from the Screenplay? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 excerpts that we got from the from the screenplay and that I was like really taken with. I was like, holy shit! Like this is this seems like a screenplay that would be very very readable. And like yeah. some of that, I think they were like threading in some of that noir, even from what I could tell from those excerpts right away. So, kind of props to them. Yeah. Still, I think they did absolutely. I'm not saying yeah. they don't deserve it. It's just I I just it's funny how the author can get overlooked. Like so many of those. Um, video essays would mention adapted from the novel by Cormac McCarthy. And then let's talk about all the, all the things that the Coen brothers are doing yeah. and all it's all over the Coen brothers and what they're trying to accomplish, what they're trying to say. And I'm like, yeah, but Cormac McCarthy was saying it first and then they are adapting it. So yeah. it, and it feels like many of them probably didn't read the book. So maybe they don't like know how much of it is actually in the novel. That was, that was my, my interpretation at least. That tends to be the case for the general population as we yeah. know, like having done this for years, whenever I talk to people about <laughs> something, they've either read it or seen it, but usually unless you're a very specific person, not both. Yeah. Which are our, our people. If you are, if you are that yeah. kind of person, you're our you're people. Like, you're our people. <laughs> And while we're talking about the the film and like the filmmakers behind it, I have to shout out Roger Deakins, who I saw at the end is uh, doing the cinematography for this movie, which incredible throughout. And uh, we covered in uh, what was it, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, um, which is a, just an, an amazing looking film. And I think this looks amazing too. And I, I was always happy when I'm I'm starting to recognize names of like cinematographers. Like I know I'm getting deeper into film <laughs> for sure. I mean, Roger Deakins is like uh, like in a almost in a plane of his own you know he's kind of his own thing and and everybody knows he's just like a straight up legend he he's yeah. like absolutely like everything he's ever shot like he should have won like i know i know he now he's been recognized obviously by the by the academy but he should have won long ago for the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford Ooh, that that's movie, another movie i want to see again he deserved it for that movie because it's one of the best shot films i've ever seen in my life it's it's absolutely amazing um I, I remember I remember seeing that and, and just being struck by how it looked. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. You know what? You know what? This movie didn't didn't get nominated for best score because there there's basically no score. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, for I, sure. I, there's basically no score in this movie. And I was going to ask you, like, because that seems very uncommon to me. Like, it seems like mm-hmm. I, I can't think of another movie like that. I mean, maybe there is, but. I, there's almost no music, if, if any at all, and um, when it is, it's t- it seems to be like diegetic sound, like it's something in the scene, um, versus mm-hmm. versus you know a score coming in to tell us something about how to feel. Um, it's in, in, instead there's just silence, like such a quiet movie. Um, Very to where quiet. when there are weird sounds, like the sound of the shotgun with the silencer on it, it's really striking. Definitely. I mean, that's the tension of this movie is like it's I got like a pit in my stomach. Like I felt it in the pit of my stomach Mm -hmm. at certain points just because like, you know, um, recently a quiet place was shouted out for like how amazing the sound mixing and everything was because there was so much silence in that film and like and what that can do to a film. And this movie is absolutely achieving the same thing. This, uh, there's so much tension brought about. There is a lot of moments where, you know, one character is creeping up, you know, into the hotel room and the other one mm-hmm. sitting behind a door and we're listening and every little creak and every little squeak. And, well, um, it, you know, yeah. Sugar has his shoes off. So he's walking with his soft like feet and like all these little sounds like they just, you know, they amplify 
so much when you have no score to to break it up and it's just that sound i don't know and then and then i think one of the video essays i saw made this point about how like the wind is almost the score to this movie and the sound of air flowing um yeah and I, I totally i totally get that because that yeah it's that diegetic just like atmospheric sound tends to be the the main source of anything uh going on in, in, in all these scenes sound and it works so well for the project it works so well for this film yeah. because it like i said it, it helps with that tension it and it puts you at, like there's it's uneasy you're uneasy yeah. because you're used to feeling a score in a film and like you it's something that you can't really put your finger on if you're not really thinking about it and just to be able mm-hmm. to like subliminally do that to an audience is like master class like that's it's one of that's the so ultimate awesome moves of of like trusting the audience and like taking the guardrails off taking the 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 training wheels off and and just throwing you into this movie that's like being executed at such a high level and expecting you to sort of sink or swim with it um and that's just one of the many ways in which it does it right where it's like we're just gonna do this thing and it's gonna make you feel weird and we're gonna break conventions left and right and you know it's gonna be up to you whether or not you can sort of keep up with it (laughs) yeah the scene you're talking about where he's like creeping over in his socks and and um moss is trying to like pull the the briefcase through the vents and how much tension that brings because of yeah. all the noises that like, are can being you made. hear it yeah um that i i remember when i was watching it just this most recent time i remember being so into it and like i said i had like a like i was feeling it in the pit of my stomach just it was hurting my stomach a little bit and then uh, <laughs> it got to the point where the next time someone spoke it was like shocking to me i was like oh shit like it was mm-hmm. another scene and it was just had been so long since anybody had spoken um and i just found that to be like really jarring and i was like god they're just it's just at every turn they're just surprising you okay so do you want to jump in the plot now yeah, we, we got to. Let's get, let's get into it. In 1980, hitman Anton Chigurh is arrested in Texas. In custody, he strangles a deputy sheriff and uses a captive bolt pistol to kill a driver and escape in his car. He spares the life of a gas station owner who accepts a challenge and successfully guesses the result of Chigurh's coin toss. Hunting pronghorns in the desert, Lewin Moss comes across the aftermath of a drug deal gone bad. He finds several dead men and dogs, a wounded Mexican man begging for water, a stash of drugs in the vehicle, and $2 million in a briefcase. He takes the money and returns home. Feeling guilty, Moss returns to the scene that night with water. He is pursued by two men in a truck and escapes into a river. At home, he sends his wife, Carla Jean, to stay with her mother, then drives to a motel in Del Rio, where he hides the briefcase in his room's air duct. Chigurh, hired to recover the money, arrives to search Moss's home, where he uses his bolt pistol to blow the lock out of the door. Terrell County Sheriff Ed Tom Bell d- observes the blown-out lock. Following an electronic tracking device hidden in the money, Chigurh goes to Moss's motel room and kills a group of Mexicans who are waiting to ambush Moss with his shotgun. Moss has rented a second room adjacent to the Mexicans' room with access to the duct where the money is hidden. He retrieves the briefcase just before Chigurh opens the duct. Yeah, uh, so a lot to talk about here. We've already touched on some of these scenes, uh, but let's talk about a few that we haven't mentioned yet. So our first introduction to uh, Chigurh is um, he's this man being arrested and brought into a, pl- a police station, and then we get this awesome scene um, of him sort of slowly, quietly standing up behind the the officer who's on the phone and coming up to strangle him to death. And I he kills him like right as the conversation ends so perfectly uh it almost seems like he would have killed him when he was still talking um but i don't know like it's hard to, it's hard to say it just it, it all lines up so perfectly 
that's a couple reasons why like if he had killed him while he's on the phone and the person on the other end might be alerted so he may exactly. have been like sort of waiting yeah but it didn't seem like he knew it was going to end then it just seemed like it happened to end right before he killed him yeah um and then this has to be i mean i haven't seen them all but one of the most brutal strangulations like on any like ever put on film it is so brutal. The 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 kicking, the scuffing of the boots is such an incredible detail right out of the book. Very, um, very good, yeah. Um, and then the spurting blood. Like, I feel like so many strangulation scenes in movies are bloodless, right? And so, like, the idea of the spurting blood, it just makes it so brutal. And then the, the wounds that it does to Chigurh's own wrists. Um, and then the look on his face is just like, that's that's something that, you know, is not in the book because <laughs> it doesn't, you know, you don't get that view. But like, that's something that Javier Bardem brings to the role, this sort of madness. Um, and then that's immediately juxtaposed with the next kill he does in the following scene that is like so calm, so businesslike. Um, and, and we don't know what to make of this character. It's like he's killing people left and right, you know, one brutally, one just businesslike. It, it seems, I don't know, it's really strange off-putting character yeah i mean it unhinged immediately yeah we immediately see like he's like looking away while he's strangling that person and he like he's just like got this insane but he almost looks happy like yeah but like i don't know if that's what it is but it's what he looks like i don't know the scuffing i I wanted to shout out the scuffing because like that idea to do that like i know that that's from the book but like the amount that's there and the Mm -hmm. way that it's like it's lingered over after he's been killed and we're looking at it it looks like part of the floor for a second and then you're like oh fuck like he straight he like struggled that much and like Mm -hmm. i I just thought that was all like very striking it's it's announcing how this is a different kind of movie right like this is it's announcing what kind of movie you're in for i think right from the jump um and you know, so much, so much character building is happening here. Shigur yeah. is this this force of chaos, this force of death, and and uh, I think one of the video essays I, I saw mentioned how he's wearing all black, and um, his his hair even kind of looks like a hood. I don't know if you saw this mm-hmm. one, <laughs> um, and I actually really like that because it kind of explains why his hair looks so interesting, right? Like so unusual. And when he is viewed from behind, it almost looks like he's wearing a hood, which gives him this grim reaper look. Um, which as he how he operates in the story, I think uh, is probably very intentional. Well, yeah, death being so, like random. We look around at our daily lives and people die for all kinds of different reasons. We never know yeah. why. And he basically is that random with his kills. And he does that has that fate element to him as, as well with the coin flip. Yeah. I mean, he, he embodies the idea of like, I am just I am just a instrument. I am just um, he is he, he, he seems to view himself as the embodiment of of death and of random death right right um and and that that is i think manifested in the coin flip that he does yeah i read an interesting fact according to a january 2018 article in business insider a group of psychiatrists studied 400 movies and identified 126 psychopathic characters they chose javier bardem's portrayal of anton chigur as the most clinically accurate portrayal of a psychopath really wow yeah that's scary <laughs> that's really bit. scary a little bit scary yeah i have a couple of other like interesting behind the scenes things um when when directors joel and ethan cohen approached javier bardem about playing sugar he said i don't drive i speak bad english and i hate violence the cohen's responded that's why we called you bardem said he took the role because his dream was to be in a cohen brothers film so he's like obviously not like this character at all <laughs> yeah and he does such a good job and it's you know that's a consideration right like he's gonna be forever linked to this role it's so iconic he won an oscar for it as well yeah yeah you know props to him he does a great job 
so there was a small change in the coin flip scene, which I wanted to talk about just just for a moment. The line in the book is, what's the most you've ever seen lost in a coin toss? And in the movie, he says, what's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? Makes it more um, personal. It makes it more personal. It makes it makes it more of a threat, at least a mm-hmm. more direct threat. Um, and so it, it, I wanted to bring props because I, I think that's a good change. I actually like that version of the line a little better. I think they both operate the same way, but yeah, I, I like the directness of that. I have to shout out the editing in that scene as well because it is so tense. Again, mm-hmm. there's no score. Or there might be a little bit of a score, but I don't like think the way- there is, man. I, I think this movie has no score for the vast majority, if not the complete film. The way that they cut to reaction shots, and I know that like that's honestly, I, I know from studying this stuff that everyone will tell you the co- if you want to talk about sh- shot reverse shot and reaction shots the Coens are the go-to like mm-hmm. they they have excellent timing with their with their there's a they always get great reactions out of their actors which is something key i think to to like you know how we always talk about the in, inner monologue of a character that we get in a novel they they try to attempt to get that with their reaction shots and i think mm-hmm. a lot of times they add, add a lot of humor yeah. in a lot of their funnier movies and in this movie and in this scene the reaction shots we're getting of this terrified store clerk and the reaction shots we're getting of things that he's saying and then Shigur reacting to that, it's all amazing. And and yeah. just the pacing of the scene is so, it's so, like, there's so much life to it. It's so, it's just pulsing. I mean, I, we've, I, I've said this kind of thing in other moments, but I truly think this is one of my favorite scenes in any movie. I would put it up there. I, I, I absolutely love this scene. It's probably my favorite scene in this in, in this movie, which is saying something. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't even have to watch the, you could just watch that scene. You don't have to have anything before or after. Yeah. And that scene works as its own like mini film right there. It's so good. Let's talk a little bit about Llewellyn, um, because we, we so far we've sort of left him out of the discussion, but he is sort of the neo Western protagonist. He is this anti hero that we see everywhere these days. Right. And he, um, our, our modern sensibilities assumes that, okay, we have this classic Western hero who's out of his depth, but then we have Llewellyn, who's our more what we're more familiar with these days, the anti-hero, the guy who is morally gray himself. He's robbing from people. He's killing people, whatever. You know, like he, mm-hmm. he is morally gray in a different way, yet he still has a morality to him. He's bringing out the water. He seems like at his core, he's a good guy. Um, and so it sets up his confrontation with uh Shiger as being the way that the film is going and when it doesn't even do that that's where it's like oh this is really something different because even that is something we've expected we've expected the neo-western sensibilities to override the classic western right. but then even that fails to to come to fruition this is like the third level of it like we said the the classic john wayne character the good versus evil you know good obviously ultimately winning Mm -hmm. and then we have this other generation of westerns where it was like you said this like scoundrel this like somebody who's like you know willing to do something that's morally gray for the greater good and ultimately win the day and Mm -hmm. be you know show that they have a heart of gold and ultimately like they're they're the hero of the story or even if they Um, don't have a heart of gold they they are still a they're a they're ultimately a force for good even if they're not good people Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then this one, like you said, it's like this is just like taking all those two conventions of Westerns and then blending them together and then also being like, fuck you to those, to those. <laughs> like saying like, that's not how this story is going to go. It's yeah. sort of its own thing. 
Yeah, it, it go it goes somewhere else. Yeah, and it makes for a really interesting watch. Like it's it is fresh, it's new, it's it's yeah. I don't think you can do this again, really. You know, I think it's almost like a one off. Like you can you can take. I guess you can kind of lean into what the Coens were doing, but they did it in such a way that like they they were like we took these two conventions now. To take theirs would be even weirder because then you'd be going back to the status quo almost. Like you'd be yeah. like, well, I'm going to subvert what the Coens did and go with a John Wayne character, and then you're back to square one almost. So there's there's two things there's two things I want to talk about at this point. One of them is brief. Uh, it's just I, I do want to shout out how incredible the set design is for this movie. Hundred um, percent. Yeah. How it's it's these grimy, grungy '80s uh, era sets and hotels and. I remember at the time, like uh, when I first saw it, I was just so in it. I was like, I didn't even doubt it. It was like I was transported to another time. And I didn't even realize I had been transported there because there was nothing about it that seemed like it didn't fit. And I had to think about it later. Like this movie was shot much later than it wasn't shot in the eighties, even though it looks like it was <laughs> pretty incredible. Uh, just, you know, shout out to everybody who went into set, all the set design for this movie. Cause it just looks fantastic. Anytime you try to take on a period piece, even if yeah. it's just the 80s, like you're like, it is a period piece trying to yeah. shoot. You can't just go outside and shoot that. So like that's all very, you know, set design oriented and everything. I wanted to read some another fact I while we're on this topic. While on location in Marfa, Texas, the movie There Will Be Blood was shooting nearby wow. in 2007 or 2006, maybe one day while filming a wide shot of the landscape, directors Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen had to halt shooting for the day when a gigantic cloud of dark smoke floated conspicuously into view. <laughs> Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson was testing the pyrotechnics of an oil derrick set ablaze on the set of his film. The Coens resumed filming the next day when the smoke finally dissipated. A year and a half later, both films were the leading contenders at the Academy Awards. Wow, that's a fun bit of uh, movie history there. I like that. Yeah. Isn't that that's, funny? That's great. Tommy Lee Jones himself was the first person cast in this movie, and he really pushed for them to shoot on location in Texas as well, because I think a lot of it was shot um, elsewhere. Mm. But there were scenes that they actually shot in Texas, and that was important to him um, when he came aboard. And he was like a pretty like he when Tommy Lee Jones was on board, a lot of people started to come on as well. Yeah. Uh, and obviously it's the Cohen. So that that doesn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, so the next part I wanted to talk about in this section is um there is this scene where Anton Chigurh takes a fork on the road to go towards the hotel where Llewellyn's staying, and he crosses a bridge. And it's incredibly dark, and this bridge is sort of bright, and you can see it, but it's like crossing into darkness. And he put, and out of the side of his window, he shoots at this crow. Um, he misses it, but he does shoot at it. And then he goes across. And I remember like just I, I think I paused it after it happened. I was like, what the hell was this scene? Like, what what is this? And so I had some thoughts about it. I wrote some stuff down and then I watched those video essays and a few of them touch on this scene. And one of them talks about the kick the dog moment and how they said, oh, this is his kick the dog moment, identifying him mm -hmm. as a villain. Um, and they're like, yeah, he just he shoots this animal and, and that's to identify his violence towards animal and makes him bad, which is uh, something that opposes the save the cat moment, which is another screenwriting thing where like you have a hero save an animal or save somebody defenseless and it establishes them as the hero. And I can see that, but I also don't know that that's what this scene is. Um, it, it, it feels a little bit beside the point to me um, because he already is. There's no doubt in our minds that he is the villain at this point in the movie. So it's not it's unnecessary. 
Um, so I, I, before I give sort of my thoughts on it, I just thought I'd ask you, like, wh- what, what did you take away from the scene? Why is it in the movie? What did you think of it? So I have two, two thoughts about it. The first being in the video essay, I think they do a good job of explaining the fact that like kick the dog moments were, are, are pretty massive in Westerns. Mm-hmm. So to have a kick the dog moment here makes sense if they're trying to do any sort of subversion or just an homage to that. Um, the other thing is, I think that that was a moment I, that were, it was trying to be funny, honestly. Like, I think that was a funny moment that they threaded in because he doesn't actually kill it. And it's so fucking out, out, like out there. You're like, why would he even slow down to shoot this thing? Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny. It's, it's absurd. Like, why would he do that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's honestly part of my read on it. So, but I'd love to hear what you think. Is there some sort of deeper context to it? I, I maybe, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm way out in left field on this one, but okay. So it is kind of funny and it definitely is sort of out there. Um, but this goes into my idea of the grim reaper, right? Like, um, we see him sort of personifying death throughout and he is this force of chaos. Uh, there's something to be said for these coins that he uses that he, to determines people's fate. I found myself thinking of Chiron and like the river sticks, right? Like the boatman, mm. the ferryman into the underworld. And I see Shigur crossing this bridge into darkness and it felt like crossing into the underworld. And Shigur feels like a character who is trying to assert some sort of power over death or to usurp death. And when he sees this crow on this bridge, a crow is like classically a a figure that represents death, right? They're scavengers, they're blackbirds. And he sees this crow on this bridge, this bridge that perhaps represents crossing into the underworld. And to take a shot at it, to me was an attempt to say, you are not the master here, I am. And yet, I think it is important that he misses because as we continue to follow the character to the end of the movie, in some ways he fails to actually conquer the randomness of death and the randomness of life because we see in that final car crash, that's not something he predicted is going to happen. And and it is, you know, almost his downfall, you know, maybe not, but like, that is, again, him, as much as he thinks he is the force of chaos, he is the coin. Right after that, something happens that he has no control over. So even he is at the whims of fate. Um, so I get, I guess that's connecting. To me, that scene is like an, an indicator of that arc. What do you think? I like that. No, I think that's cool. It's sort of a fuck you. If, if a vulture is to be associated with death, then yeah, it's like a fuck you to death. And then ultimately, like death like no one can even though he thinks he's this vessel of death or he thinks of himself as the grim reaper or the devil or whatever he's not and ultimately it comes for all of us and he misses right like who else does he miss in the movie almost never right yeah he is fallible which we see which eventually he's fallible because like he believed in the that's another thing that i loved that another video essay brought up was the the laws of uh like he lives by a certain set of laws and like he he even tells um wells when he's killing him like you know you believed in these in these laws like where did that get what, you yeah like, if, if the rule that you followed led you here what good was the rule or something like that exactly yeah and then ultimately he dies following the, the rules of the road going through a green light yeah and trusting that the law like like the, the outright law of the road would, would 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 win out but you can't account for the randomness sometimes people aren't going to see that red light and you're going to get t-boned in the middle of the you know and like i, I love that like the way that the law came into a like the this sort of rules that came into justice and all that came into effect again in that way uh one more quick thing in this section he breaks into that room and kills 
three men and the first shot <laughs> where he shoots the guy's arm I don't know if you like saw that scene like exactly what happened in it but he basically blows the guy's arm off although it's like attached by like a string and it dangles and he lets out this scream that is like honestly haunting haunting sound for a human to make <laughs> and it's all paired with the sound of the shotgun and it's another one of those scenes where I'm like that's one of the most brutal things I've ever seen in a movie um and I don't know if you saw anything about like how they did that scene but it it was incredible. I don't know how they got it to look so freaking good, but they're just magic, I guess, with these these effects that people are able to pull off. It just looked like a real thing. It looked like I saw a real thing happen, and it was <laughs> harrowing. <laughs> I would guess a mix of practical and and CG. To Maybe be you honest, get an actor like, who has like a has like a you know, uh, you partial, know arm. partial arm, and then you can put yeah. a fake arm on it to get it pulled. I don't know something yeah. like that. Could be yeah. That I know that that's a thing that's done for yeah. sure. There's a couple of like behind the scenes things I really want to make sure we get to before we get through this second half here. Um, Josh Brolin was working on Grindhouse in 2007 when he became drawn to the role of Moss in this film. He asked Grindhouse director Robert Rodriguez if he could borrow a video camera for his audition tape, and he ended up having his audition elaborately shot with the theatrical camera they were using, directed by Quentin Tarantino and with Marley Shelton as Carla Jean. When the Coens saw Brolin's tape, they, their response was they loved the lighting. <laughs> so Grindhouse, like for those who don't know, like Planet Terror and Grindhouse mm -hmm. was like a whole like um, B-movie thing that like Robert Rodriguez and, and Quentin Tarantino were doing in like 2007. And Brolin was on it. And this this idea that he got Quentin Tarantino to shoot his audition tape for the Coens. Pretty amazing. You know, Tarantino was like, you're getting this fucking role, Brolin. <laughs> I'm going to get this for you. Yeah. And uh, uh, this is idea that the Coens were like, the lighting was amazing. Like, that's so funny. And, and like, I, I just love to see those filmmakers interact in that way. This is just like a such a wild fact that I found and I looked a little bit more into it and it's completely true. In the novel, Sheriff Bell says of the dope dealers, here a while back in San Antonio, they shot and killed a federal judge. Cormac McCarthy set the story in 1980. In 1979, federal judge John Howland Wood was shot and killed in San Antonio, Texas by Texas freelance contract killer Charles Harrelson, the father of Woody Harrelson. What? <laughs> oh my god. Can you believe that that's true? His father was a hitman. That's insane. And killed a federal judge that was talked about in Cormac McCarthy's novel, so it comes full circle when Woody Harrelson is in this movie. Oh, I was thinking of you, man, by the way, when you were talking last week about how you couldn't remember uh Wells being in the movie. And I was like, yeah. Woody Harrelson, how did you not remember I this? <laughs> no, I completely forgot. I didn't know. And when I saw Woody Harrelson, I was like, holy shit. When he walked, we saw we saw him from the back first. Uh -huh. And I was like, that kind of looks like Woody Harrelson. We get the shot, the reverse shot. And I'm like, holy shit, Woody I didn't Harrelson want to spoil it for you because you said you didn't remember. I didn't even want to say anything. I'm like, I wonder if he even remembers that he's in this movie. Yeah, I did not remember that. Yeah. So good. But how I just can't. I'll never forget the fact that his father was a hitman. Yeah, killed. no, that's that's wild. That's insane. And he plays a hitman in this movie. It's mm -hmm. not like Woody Harrelson doesn't know what his he, dad He's did, played Hitman, you know? I think, in other movies, or at least Killers for many times. Well, natural yeah, Natural Born, born Killers. killers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, so I'm going to read the second half now. Moving to a hotel in the border town of Eagle Pass, Moss discovers the tracking device, but Shigur has already found him. Their firefight spills onto the streets, killing a bystander and wounding the both. Moss flees across to Mexico, stashing the case of money in weeds along the Rio Grande. Finding Moss severely injured, a passing band takes him to a hospital. Carson Wells, another hired operative, fails to persuade Moss to accept protection in return for the money. Shigur cleans and stitches his own wounds with stolen supplies and sneaks up on Wells at his hotel. 
After Wells unsuccessfully attempts to barter for his life, Shigur kills him in his hotel room. Moss telephones the room and Shigur answers. Shigur vows to kill Carla Jean unless Moss gives up the money. Moss retrieves the case from the bank of the Rio Grande and, and arranges to meet Carla Jean at a motel in El Paso, where he plans to give her the money and hide her from danger. Carla Jean is approached by Sheriff Bell, who promises to protect Moss. Carla Jean's mother unwittingly reveals Moss's location to a group of Mexicans who have been tailing them. Bell reaches the motel rendezvous at El Paso, only to hear gunshots and spot a pickup truck speeding from the motel. As Bell enters the parking lot, he sees Moss lying dead. When Carla Jean arrives, she chokes up upon finding out her husband is dead. That night, Bell returns to the crime scene and finds the lock blown out. Shigur hides behind the door after retrieving the money. Bell enters Moss's room and sees that the vent has been removed. Later, Bell visits his uncle Ellis, an ex-lawman, and tells him he plans to retire because he feels overmatched by the recent violence. Ellis replies that the region has always been violent. Weeks later, Carla Jean returns from her mother's funeral to find Shigur waiting in her bedroom, per his threat to Moss. She refuses his offer of a coin toss for her life, stating that he cannot pass blame to luck. The choice is his. Shigur checks his boot as he leaves the house. As he drives through the neighborhood, a car crashes into his at an intersection and Shigur is injured. He bribes two young witnesses for their silence and flees. Now retired, Bell shares two dreams with his wife. In the first, he lost some money his father had given him. In the other, he and his father were riding through a snowy mountain pass. His father had already gone ahead to make a fire in the darkness and wait for Bell. Yeah, uh, so many great scenes, so many things we could talk about. Don't have time to get into all of them. <laughs> so uh, let's let's jump around a little bit. Um, after Shigur executes Wells, and um, he's talking with Llewellyn on the phone, and they're sort of negotiating, and then uh, Llewellyn says, I'm going to make you a special project of mine, and it hangs up on him. There's a moment where uh, Shigur looks over at Wells, at least that's my read of it, is he's looking over at Wells' body with this like surprised look on his face. And I thought to me, it was like he was saying, like, oh, you were right, because Wells had warmed him. He's like, you don't know with a certainty what's going to happen, because uh, Shigur had said, he, he's like, the money will be brought to me. And he ends up being wrong. That doesn't happen. And so I thought it was really funny. And like, I, that was my read of that scene. I don't know. Did, did you get something else from that? Yeah, no, I kind of saw the same. He's like almost like, yeah, like you said, yeah, you're right. And it's like the surprise look at a dead man is yeah. just such a psychopath thing to do. Yeah, it was almost like he wanted him to laugh too. Like, hey, man, I, you were right. Like yeah. he was like, pleased. It was so, so weird. But so yep. like, I just remember and that moment. Of course, the... Uh, the fact that he like he he's always taking his shoes off with blood and mm-hmm. he like he like lifts his feet up while he's on the phone which eventually like i just said in in this in this thing it's it's cl- i think it's funny that it's even a question in my in my mind that people people aren't sure whether carla jean is oh, killed no, in this she's movie definitely or not dead. and it's 100 <laughs> percent like yeah, he's looking no. at his shoes because of the whole blood it's just motif. because they don't they don't spell it out for you they just give you all the pieces to 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 spell yeah. it out so yes um so one thing i did i forgot to mention this last week and i wanted to mention it here Cormac McCarthy's fluent in Spanish, and he's known for including passages in Spanish in his novels that are untranslated. There is no no character translates them for you. And I thought it was interesting that, and, and I'm going to commend them, they brought that into the movie because there's several different times where characters are speaking in Spanish and we don't get a translation. Um, and it's interesting because like you get you get the movie without knowing it, but in all of those moments, there is something a little bit there like knowing that the character who uh, is talking about a lobos, which is like a wolf, like there's wolves. 
And if you don't know what that means, you don't know what they're talking about, right? Like it could be anything. Um, so speaking of wolves, which is like, you know, sort of evokes the idea of like these predators looming, which, you know, can take the many different manifestations, whether that's Sugar himself or the other uh, hunters out there looking for Llewellyn. Um, and then you get the, the, the mariachi band or I, I, forget, I don't know if they're mariachi. What, the, this band that wakes up Llewellyn. Apparently they were singing a song that like mimics what had happened to Llewellyn about like you wanted wealth and you like flew too high and you got burned or something like it's and, and it's it's very much mimicking his actual story up to this point in the movie. And if you don't speak Spanish, you don't know that that's what they're singing about. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff, you know, like yeah. little little Easter eggs for people who understand the language is cool. awesome to me. That's very cool. So let's talk a little bit about Llewellyn dying um, dies off screen. The last mm. we see him, he's having this conversation with this woman at the pool who is who is sort of the stand-in for the hitchhiker in, in what is maybe the biggest change from book to movie is that we don't get the, hitch, hit, the prolonged hitchhiker sequence. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really get them connecting in the same way. But there is a line where he says, oh, I'm looking out for what's coming. And she says, no one ever sees that. And that's the last, that's the last time we see Luan alive. So I think it's like definitely a key. And there's like an interesting fade, right? Like there's a fade on that moment, which you don't see in like other transitions. And I mm-hmm. think it's like a, a a subtle signal to the to the viewer, like say goodbye yeah. to Llewellyn because he's about to die. Yeah. Fade to black for him a little bit, <laughs> yeah. even though it wasn't necessarily a fade to black. But yeah. And typically fades are like, you know, a passage of time kind of thing as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's it kind just, of serving both purposes. Yeah. It of, stands out you know. as something, right? It gets different. And, you, and you're like, yeah. what does that mean? That's what it means. <laughs> that's what it means. Yeah, get ready. And and that kind of like decision making to do that, those kinds of details, like that's the kind of stuff that like when you sit and really think about like what you want your film to be like, those those little details all stack up to make something amazing. And that's why that's why the Coen brothers are, are masters. You know, that's why these filmmakers are so you could just put a cut there, but mm-hmm. they don't. You yeah, know? they don't. So there's a reason for everything they do. So another one of the other scenes that I wanted to to talk with you about because again it's one where i don't think these video essays i've seen so far actually get into it and actually talk about what happens in the scene in a way that is at least meeting the level i want to get to and that's um after llewellyn our sort of neo-noir western hero uh dies then all of a sudden we get sheriff bell and he gets this little line from from this other guy he's meeting with where he says uh you know, he just go, strolled right back into a crime scene. Who would ever do such a thing? And then, like, we gets this, like, aha moment where he realizes, mm-hmm. I got to go back. He's going to have come back to this crime scene. Yep. And he, well, sees the, it, he sees the yeah. lock blown out, and he has this moment of hesitation of, do I go in or do I not go in? This moment of fear. And he, he is has the heroic moment where he summons the courage to go inside. And, you know, we have to since in case you haven't watched it recently, we have to set up the fact that like throughout the movie he had like when they first get to the the trailer to like check through Lewin's trailer, um, he sends his partner in and his, he's like gun gun up, you know, be yeah. ready for action or whatever. And he's like, are you going to pull your gun out? And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm behind you. You're, you're guarding me. basically. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, hiding like, behind you. There's these <laughs> there's these moments of like him using like humor almost as like a as like a. Um, like he's trying to deflect mm-hmm. his fear and he's like very he's the entire time it's like he's dealing with like they're like do you want to go back to this crime scene because you know some new da d like some new, new agent is here some fbi agent and he's like he's like are there any more bodies and they're like no and he's like well then i don't need to go out there anymore yeah, i've yeah. seen it so he keeps sort of trying to skirt like his responsibilities a little bit along the way 
And and then we get this moment where he's he's left to make a decision. And there's two doors, right? The tape is around two doors. So it's, again, almost like a coin flip situation. It's a 50-50. If he is in one of these rooms, what if he chooses the room that he's in? What if he doesn't choose the correct room? Um, okay. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is honestly probably my second favorite scene of the film yeah just because again this is this is the culmination of all those things and then the reflection that he's getting like through the busted out doorknob almost so so basis. let's talk about the scene so we see yeah. a reverse shot inside of um seems to be at Shiger. least sugar is in there waiting and we see the door handle right like we see the door handle that he's at and then he pushes the door open he steps inside his shadows on the wall and we've talked about like you know, the noir and like the, you know, different video essays talked about like, oh, is it a shadow of his former self or is it a shadow of the man he thinks he is? Or is it just an homage to noir? I don't know. Um, but then he goes in and the room is empty. And there's a very specific moment where he looks at the window and the window is locked. And I was like, no one has talked about this moment because the language of movies to me says that Shakur was in this room. And then now he's not, and there's no way he could have gotten out. And to me, this reminded me of there's these moments in Cole, uh, Coen Brothers movies that sometimes border on supernatural spooky moments, right? And I don't think this is not present in the book, to my memory of it. This is a this is a Coen Brothers thing. Somehow, Shiger got out of this room, and there's all this talk earlier about like how he's a ghost. That's what that's what he keeps saying, like, oh, he's a ghost to me. And this was a moment of supernatural. I don't know, like he he somehow got out of this room. Maybe he fled. I don't know if this is like yeah. he. I think they baked in know. enough deniability here. So this is this is my read on it. Right. I assume there's two rooms here. Right. But we only see one. Right. We only see one busted lock. But okay. but we never see when we see when we're seeing the reflection, per se, from Sugar's perspective could be the other room that he's seeing a reflection there's he's not seeing he's only seeing the headlights reflected basically into the into that other room so there's that and then there's also the fact that like the room that he eventually goes into that uh bell eventually goes into they have a very specific shot where he looks down and a coin has been used Mm -hmm. to open up nails to to like so obviously he absolutely has been there and it's like whether he was in there and like i don't think he could have fit through that grate, right like that was too small for him to like squeeze through yeah but is it also maybe implied that he like, you know, use a coin to undo the nails and then cr- crawl through the grate, maybe like uh, crawl through the air duct or whatever it was? Like, it didn't I, look I don't like know. it went anywhere. This one, I didn't think so either. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but like to I, me, you know. to me, the it's supernatural, right? Because he, 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 there's some sort of he apparated <laughs> out of there, right? Or the magic of editing is that he's in the other room. Like I, I don't really, yeah, I'm not really sure how to it's, land on the that. other room theory. Is interesting. I, I don't know, but I'd have to go back and watch it to see if there's like really enough to set up this other room. I, I didn't even remember that both both doors had had tape on them, but I'll take your word. Yeah, the that tape did. Like covers both. Yeah, because to me, like, there's only one crime scene. There's only one where the this grate's been taken off. Like clearly, Shigur was in this room at some point to to get the thing out of there, um, and and um. I just think this is, uh, and and I'm touching a little bit on my knowledge of the series of Fargo, um, the TV series, right. which is an homage and like a sort of reference to the original film. I think um, they, pro- I and, think they at least like are on as producers or something on that. Yeah, and one of the things that is very present in that mo- in that show is unexpected moments of supernatural weirdness, 
that's like inexplicable and you don't expect. And mm-hmm. um, I remember reading some some stuff about that and how they were saying that like, oh, they like how the Coen brothers do this in their movies. And it's not something yep. I had really thought about a lot. And uh, I was wondering if this is an example of that. Maybe I think it really I, I definitely think it could be. I mean, like there's moments of like a serious man has a little bit of that, too. Yeah. Like I, it, it absolutely is part of their filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. So I and I think that like they, they bake in enough to where they can you can be like, OK, he made it out. But there's also something to be said for like, is this like you said, some sort of moment of them saying like there's no way he should have been able to make it out yeah. and maybe there is a way he made it out but also yeah maybe he's a ghost and and but it's interesting because this is actually contradicts my other point about how ultimately he is a human who is still subject to the whims of fate so so i don't know I, like it, which way is it or is it is it both at the same time and and you know i did want to ask you because we talked last week um you remembered like sort of not thinking that the sugar survived in the mm, in the movie, yeah. right? What do you think now, having oh, seen? Oh, he it? for sure survives. I don't know why I was. I guess I was just thinking like it's such a serious injury, and I thought there's no way he's going to seek medical attention. So like I I could foresee a situation where he would get an infection or something and die. So in my mind, I was like, oh, maybe he's he's so stubborn he won't go get medical attention. He's going to die from this wound. But yeah, he's so he's so supernatural, and like the way he did surgery on himself um, to get those bullets out, like, he he doesn't die. I don't I don't think that he scene. That that scene. I agree. That scene to uh, to get into the pharmacy, by the way, where he fills yeah. the, the the gas tank with the shirt and stuff is amazing. Another great scene. Just like him walking in, the effect of that yeah. just on screen, and they're like pulling back as he's walking towards, and the way that he walks through the whole movie is another thing yeah. we haven't talked about. Yeah, very very uh, ominous, sort of like slow stalking. It's like a he's got his shoulders up high, mm-hmm. and he's like really like coming at you like a I don't know. He shot from behind a lot too, which I don't know. Is, I always think of like uh, the wrestler, where we get these a lot of these views of the wrestler walking, and it's reminiscent of like wrestlers walking into the ring to go fight. Uh, and and yeah. so I don't know something about that following somebody walking. Uh, it, it does feel like you're watching someone about to do, do, do combat or something. Yeah, one of the scenes we absolutely have to talk about is the retired Bell scenes and yeah. his his dreams, and I think the interpretation of the dreams and whether you found it satisfying is going to determine like how you feel walking out of the movie. Right, and I think that's where a lot of people, when this movie first came out, maybe didn't like I said I didn't really get it. Yeah, um, and like it takes more analysis than just watching it on a surface level. Uh, what did you think? So this movie deflates at the end. There is a building, a building of tension, a ramping up, ramping up of tension throughout the movie. And we are built up and conditioned from a million other movies, every other movie we've ever seen, to expect a final confrontation between Llewellyn and uh, Chigurh. And then when Llewellyn dies, we're like, okay, well, we still got, we still got Sheriff Bell. He's going to get in a confrontation with him. And then that doesn't happen. And so each time it's like being taken away from us and deflating, deflating, deflating. And then we get these two weird scenes. He goes and speaks with his uh, cousin and uh, they have a discussion about like, you know, life and and him retiring. And um, we get this moment where he says, uh, the cousin says, he, he basically tells a story about how what you're dealing with is nothing new. Um, and we talked about this in the book a little bit, too. And, it, you know, it really underscores the idea that, like, this isn't a new this isn't as new as you think it is. And that that past that you've been idealizing maybe wasn't ever real. Um, mm. And then and then we get this final moment with uh, Bell talking about some dreams and talking about dreams that, you know, he even admits aren't really that interesting to anybody other than who has them. 
and then it, it just cuts to black and we're left with completely unsatisfied right like and i, so I can see how in a sense i mean like yeah in a it sense, depends but on in a what, sense of like you feel about expectation it. like the expectation of the first half of the movie is sort yeah. of completely unsatisfied but that's the point <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i will I say the movie's kind okay of been if setting that's you not up. okay like i think some people yeah. would say like that's bullshit and i don't like that and like i get it you know what i mean yeah i just i think it's interesting and i like that a movie like this exists but you certainly couldn't do every movie like this, right? Like Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing. They're playing with the fact that it's a movie and you're expecting certain things to happen in a movie. And I think that like the whole movie's been saying there's randomness in life. Yep. Like you can never predict exact outcomes. You like all of this has been like about the human experience and like death comes for us all and endings aren't always what you expect. And then the ending is the same way. Mm-hmm. So it fully represents like a full cir- circle for the story and I think it's like a really nice ending when you think of it that way. Um, and like his, his stories that he says are profound, like having a, having a, like a, a dream of your father who he's talked about in the monologue, I think early on about how his dad was also a cop and Mm -hmm. it was very, it was, he made him very happy. And the idea of his dad waiting for him, like along some snowy embankment where it's warm and there's light, uh, is like almost like a, is this like, um, is this a dream? Is this a premonition? Is this what heaven's going to be for him? Does he believe in God? Because he felt he said to his cousin, does he he always felt like God would come into his life at some point, but he hadn't. Mm-hmm. And like that, you know, is that him grappling with his faith or grappling with like his mortality? Um, and I think there's a lot there. And, and this idea of like his dad, clearly he always wanted to make his dad proud because that's something that was a big deal. He was a cop when he was 25 yeah. and or sheriff when he was 25. And his dad was also a sheriff at the same time. And uh, his dad sort of like forging ahead and the idea that like his dad died younger than he is currently is another fact that he says like I'm an old man in comparison to what he was at the time of his death um, and sort of my dad went through this path before me and maybe he's there waiting for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's not though, you know? Yeah. Um, Cormac McCarthy did an interview with Oprah and we talked about it in the last episode. And one of the things he talked about was how he thinks that dreams are like a tap into your subconscious and that they will work out problems that you're dealing with in your like daily life. And I'm putting words in his mouth. This isn't exactly what he said, (laughs) but my takeaway was that he, you know, these dreams like are a way for you to like work through the problems that you have and that people should listen to their dreams and all this stuff. And I just think it's interesting that he's, you know, this is right out of the book, right? So if you, I'm taking this from the author's mouth to like, okay, what does this ending mean to me? This is bell grappling with the loss of the life and the uh, view of the world that he held on to for his whole life. And this dream is like a representation of like holding on to some faint hope and like it gives him enough to carry on. Um, But I don't know if it is necessarily an indication that it is a premonition and that any of this is going to be true. Um, I, I think it's more just an indication of Bell finding a way to carry on and to like continue his life with any semblance of happiness is just to hold out hope uh, for this thing. Yeah. And then it's up to you, I guess, as a viewer, whether or not you want to believe that there's some truth to it. Yeah, I think yeah, I agree. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Love it. But again, up to interpretation, which I always love in a mm-hmm. film like this. 
because that's that's a great way to end a, a film is just to leave it with ambiguity. A weird in way, a to satisfying end this way. Film though, I mean, so many people yeah. talk about this ending as being unsatisfying. Like I, there are like people who are like, I liked everything about this movie until the end, I, you know, until this final scene. And like, I, I get it. I just, you know, I, I I think it's, I think you can come around on it if you're willing to like, yeah. give it another chance. Again, and everything they it. do isn't it's intentional, right? Like, they didn't do it to fuck with you necessarily but maybe they were but uh, you know it's intentional there there's something they're trying to say here so yeah. you know if you found it really unsatisfying then maybe that like even after digging into it if you still find it unsatisfying and maybe it's just not the yeah. what would have you know well, spoken to your sensibilities and so we've got all these things right we got all these different messages we got the classic western we got the neo-noir western both of them fail and ultimately at the end like Shigur gets away and our character gives up and we're left with this faint hope of a dream and this this uh, intent you know this this one character telling another one that everything he thought he knew is perhaps all a lie and he's been lying to himself and um what does that all mean I don't you know what I mean like in the idea of this it, it is kind of a nihilist take of like nothing matters and it's all going to hell but you can choose to hold out hope I guess in the form of this dream like you can choose to hold out some sort of hope that there is some sort of greater meaning or some sort of greater good, um, however yeah. faint it might be and however it might just be created by your own subconscious. Yeah. So I think that we have to roll into our vote now because we're running yeah. low on time. Yeah, here. yeah. So it's going to be a tough one, obviously, but I'll let you start. Are you taking the book or the movie? Oh, God. Okay, so I've been dreading this. I, um, I say all the time that this is hard. I, I, typically it is um but i'm gonna tell you right now i actually don't know what i'm gonna pick um i'm gonna pick i'm gonna make myself pick but i i, I have something written down um and i don't know <laughs> if i'm gonna go with it but i i think i will okay i'm gonna go with it i'm literally deciding in this moment um this is incredibly difficult they're both masterfully executed the film brings so many cool elements that we just talked about the book has so many incredible passages that we talked about last week, and the writing is is just on a master level. It's as, as close as a tie as we can get for me, um, but I'm going to give it to the book. And the only really defense of that I can give is just that books are my genre, and I want to give the I want to give the credit to the author who came up with it first. Um, and I, I, the, the execution is just so masterful that I just got to give it to him, even though like all those arguments can be made, uh, about the Coen brothers film as well. Um, and it's an incredible movie. So yeah, yeah. I'll give it to Cormac McCarthy, but man, this was a hard one. Yeah. It's very tough. And for the same reason, I'm going to represent the movie. Good. <laughs> and I knew that it was probably going to be this close. Like, you know, I, I contemplated giving it to the book in this case because it really is set up by Cormac McCarthy. The story doesn't exist. A lot of the themes that are threaded into the story are straight off the page. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, most of them. Yeah. Uh, there's some stuff that I think as just as a film fan, I love that the Coens continue to play with film and to reference film that like the way that they brought in noir, I think, is, is another selling point for me because I love noir. Yeah. And you know, props to Cormac McCarthy for coming up with it. But the thing that I prefer is seeing like Anton Chigurh doing that coin flip scene. You know, some of some of that stuff is is, is so iconic, and it is like it to see it in a physical space like that is just it, it's so visceral and so real. And 
the performances are amazing um and the coens just are they're undefeated they just continue to be masters of the craft awesome man i'm i think this is more appropriate than ever to have a split decision um because both of these are, are just great representations of this material um if you enjoyed this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you use also i mean any way you want to let us know comment you know tweet at us uh you know comment on our youtube video whatever it is uh we want to hear from you um and and let us know what you think of these these topics like these conversations we're having like what is your take on it all um because this is a movie that i'm like fascinated in hearing what people get out of it what people take away from it um because it's just a really interesting piece of material yeah and like luke said if you wanted to interact with us in that way you can jump on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film and you know let us know your thoughts on these projects that we cover Absolutely. And uh, oh, I did want to shout out one of our patrons, uh, Ray S. Uh, he is at the connoisseur level on our Patreon and uh, has been a supporter now for a little while. And, you know, just shout out to him. Our patrons keep this thing going, uh, financially support us in a way that is like means so much to us. And, um, you know, we have so we have bonus uh, projects we put uh, bonus episodes out on the Patreon every month. So if you wanted to check out our Patreon, check that out. We have a lot of stuff on there. Yeah, thank you to Ray. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, here we are at the end of the episode, at the end of a project. That means it's time to announce our next project. We are going to be covering Paprika by Yasutaka Satsui, which was then made into an anime, um, which I know the anime. I've never read the book before, know nothing about the author. So we're going to be we're going to be tackling the book next week. Um, this is a weird project that probably is not going to be for everybody or, you know, I'd be interested to see what kind of numbers it does. Um, but it's one that, you know, we talk about the for them, for you. Um, I'm really interested in this one. I just curious about it. So we're going to do this one, even though it seems like an oddball choice, I think, to most people, probably. This is a movie that's influenced so much sci-fi and so many stories that are like this. Like, I, I cannot wait to cover this. I've never read the book, but I'm really excited to watch the movie again. Uh, Satoshi Kon has been super, super influential in the anime community, and, like, a lot of his movies are are legendary. Uh, cool. So I'm, I, yeah. I mean, I just can't wait. Yeah, and anime dominates a lot of my life, so yeah. I can't wait to get to cover some anime. Yeah, on, I know you're an anime podcast. guy, so I, I'm curious to, to get to that film and find out what you got to say about it. It's one I've seen, but like I don't know all the history and all that. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, we hope you do join us next week. Uh, we'll give a spoiler-free take at the beginning of the episode and whether or not you know you should you should even attempt to read the novel, whether or not it was fun. We'll talk about it. Um, yeah, and until next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.